If you have a copy of the Word of God, turn please to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Luke, chapter 8. God has given to us four Gospels, and they give to us some of the details of the ministry of our Savior and our Redeemer. And it's always good to be familiar with the Gospels, to read them, imbibe them, seek to understand them, meditate on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been going through this Gospel, and we're going to read from verse 41 through to the end of the chapter, though we won't deal with the remainder of the verses But we've come as far as verse 40, so we commence to read again at verse 41. Just to encourage you again, I'm always trying to encourage you in your singing. And it's not to uh, tell you that you're not singing well, it's because you are singing well, and I want you to continue to sing well. But someone said to me this morning, he's been here a few times, and he said, are you sure there aren't speakers that are kind of putting out more sound than the actual people? Is all that sound just coming from the people? And I said, there are no speakers putting out sound That's the people just singing praises on to the Lord. So may it ever be so. May we sing with joy and have much rejoicing in our hearts that when we enter into a new week and we stand on the threshold of a new week, we begin it with God and we remember His resurrection and we rejoice that we leave behind all the sorrows of the week past perhaps and just get our eyes and our gaze on the Lamb who died and rose again. So let us hear the Word of God tonight as we find it, Luke chapter 8, verse 41. Let's follow in the Scriptures. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he yet spake, There cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. And when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. When he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father of the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Maid, 
arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's bow together in prayer, beloved. Let's seek the Lord. We come to his living word. We need his spirit always to lead and help and guide as we consider it together. Gracious God, we're thankful that Jesus lives, and so shall we. He that believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? And Lord, we can say we believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he came, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We pray that everyone in this place will come to understand the significance, the historical reality, and the spiritual significance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into this world and all that he accomplished Help us tonight in thy word. Give us grace. Lead us, Lord. Help us to learn more, to comprehend more of thy word. And may it be of benefit to everyone gathered. Have a word in season. You know exactly where hearts are, where thy people are. Thy sheep need to be fed. We pray that thou wilt lead them in the green pastures and beside the still waters. Give help to this preacher. Even now we cast off all dependence on the flesh. And we plead, O God, give the Holy Spirit. Extend thy kingdom then, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the difficulties of the passage before us that we have just read together is the fact that we have two stories intertwined, giving the preacher the difficulty of how to deal with the passage. Do you try to deal with the entire passage as a whole? Do you deal first with the matter that relates to Jairus' daughter? Or do you deal with the woman with the issue of blood? Because depending on how you deal with that, you have different problems as you approach it. Because if we look at Jairus and his problem that presents itself, well, we have to deal with the opening verses and then skip down to the end, missing the interaction with the woman with the issue of blood. Or if we deal with the, one, the woman with the issue of blood, we have to somewhat skip over the introduction to Jairus and his uh, coming before the Lord and pleading with him to deal with the matter that is on his heart. The problem is further compounded whenever you go to the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, where the same events are recorded in the exact same fashion. We find this weaving of the details of these stories pulled together, beginning with Jairus's daughter in that matter, and then moving on to the woman with the issue of blood, and then finishing off with the raising of Jairus's daughter. Some have referred to this literary approach as the Mark and Sandwich because you find this regularly in Mark's gospel. On a number of occasions, he, he details with, he draws attention to one story, one narrative, one matter, and then before he completes it, he moves into another matter and then he returns. So if you're going to imagine of A and before of A is finished, you're moving into of B and then you complete of B before you get back to of A. And he, he does this regularly. And if it was only found in Mark, or if it was only found in Luke on this occasion, and we looked at Mark and Matthew, we might see, well, this is the way it happened. But 
But evidently, clearly, this is not, this is not just a literary technique. This is how the event unfolded. That as the Lord is hearing from Jairus and moving towards his home in response to his desire, there's this woman in the crowd, and she then reaches out to him. She is healed. And then after that, we move on to the raising of Jairus' daughter. This is important for us to see then in terms of the fact that as the Lord deals with the hearts of men, it's not always in a clean and tidy fashion. There's all sorts of things going on all the time. And this is just one insight. This is one area where we see it's not this linear matter where here's the problem introduced and then we proceed through the details until we get to the conclusion. That wasn't his ministry. It's almost tiresome to place yourself in this event and feel the, the call of Jairus, the beseeching of Jairus, the longing of Jairus, the, the, the demand of this man amidst all the crowd that are there. One man is saying, come with me. And we imagine there were other voices, other demands, other concerns, other problems, other issues that people were bringing before the Lord. And so he's drawn to this man. He follows this man, and amidst his endeavor to go after him and help him with the burden upon his heart, then also there is this woman who's looking for deliverance, for help. When you consider the Word of God and you try to present it, you always try to be clear. So when I came to this, as I say, I, I figured, I thought to myself, how am I going to approach this? Am I, am I going to try and deal with it all together or, or what? Because you don't want to get, you don't want to miss the significance of what's happening here and why Luke is pulling these matters together. Preaching's not just a matter of going through the passage. We, we were on vacation on one occasion and we went to this little church and it was all good, I, mean, it was, and I had no problem really, but when the preacher got up, he was dealing with a chapter in the book of Acts, and he read the entire chapter, and that was his text for the day, and by the end of it, all he had done was really restate what the chapter had said. He, he had just kind of put it in his own words, he had basically made sure we, we understood what happened there, but and when I came away, I thought, that, that was so dry, I mean, that... that, that I don't know why he thinks that's preaching. That's basically just what you do when, you're, when your children might say, uh, help me to understand what's going on here, and we kind of put it into... It's, it's like children's books, children's Bibles. They, they take the story and they simplify it and they help people to understand the details of what's going on. But, but Scripture, beloved, understand this. When you're reading the Word of God, Scripture's not just a plain glass that you look through. It's not a lens into the event where the gospel writers are simply saying, here are the details, here's what happened. When they're detailing it, they're, they're shading the narrative. They're, they're coloring the narrative in a particular way. They want you, by emphasis in one area and perhaps exclusion of details in other areas, they want you to focus in on certain matters. And so when you come to this event, there is not just a happenstance event where there's this man with a 12-year-old daughter that needs to be dealt with by the Lord, and then this woman with a 12-year-old problem that also needs to be addressed these are being weaved and detailed to us in such a fashion that we should learn something of what is going on. They're sovereignly intertwined so that there is emphasis upon the matters and the truths that are revealed. So when you read this, God is superintending these events. He brings this woman at the point after Jairus has pleaded 
with the Lord. Then she comes, she touches him, she's healed, and then it moves on to finish the rest of the narrative relating to Jairus' daughter. And that's the way God sovereignly governed this event and why the Spirit then draws attention to this And I I think this would have happened regularly. That's my point. I think what we're reading here in terms of here's matter A, then it's kind of uh, interrupted with another matter, and then uh, then it goes on to finish. I think this would have happened all the time. But on this occasion, there are certain truths to understand that the Spirit wants us to grasp. For one, we might say that the recipient of the miracles that we read of in these passages are in both cases female. You have a woman and you have a young girl. Both cases are beyond human aid. There's no one that can help them. They're beyond human help. Only the Lord can deliver them. In both cases, 12 years prior to the event that we read of here in Luke chapter 8, we have something happening. We have one being the origin of joy in Jairus' home as she was born, and the other received news of the misery being told for the first time by a physician that her ailment cannot be remedied. Both those events happened 12 years prior to the event that we're reading of here. One is the daughter of the ruler of a synagogue, accepted and respected in the religious community. The other, if a Jew, has been expelled from her religious life because of her uncleanness. She has no access into the place of worship. The daughter has a father who will ask Jesus for help. The woman has no one to ask help on her behalf, and she can't even pluck up the courage to ask for help herself, comes silently, hoping that by simply touching the Lord, it would get her the desire of her heart. So how are we bringing this, or dealing with this matter tonight? Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm only going to deal with verses 41 and 42. I'm going to focus in on those verses, and then when we come to verse 43, we can deal with the woman with the issue of blood, and then we can conclude the matter that relates to Jairus' daughter and her raising from the dead. And what I want us to consider tonight, what I want us to see from verse 41 and 42, is really drawing from the details given a strong application, particularly fathers that are here this evening. So what I've done is entitled this message, A Desperate Father's Burden for His Needy Daughter. A Desperate Father's Burden for His Needy Daughter. And I want to draw some simple conclusions or understanding and application from this text as the Lord gives help. Note then first, a desperate father, a desperate father. Look at verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. Here you have a desperate father. And note first, his position. We are told that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, what was a synagogue? We can read that and perhaps not pause to consider the significance of this. But a synagogue, synagogue was something that was common in those days, but not always. The word is really a transliteration of the Greek word synagogue, and it gives the picture of a gathering together. This is literally giving the idea of people gathering together. The specific origins of the Jewish synagogue is debated, but we know it follows the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Some think it developed actually around Jerusalem. So whenever you have the Babylonians coming in, destroying everything, destroying the temple, and leaving, those that remained behind then had to try, find some way to assemble to encourage themselves in religious matters. 
Others believe that it developed by the exiles, by those who were taken away, and they were the ones first to initiate this assembly called a synagogue. But whatever the case, they had no Levitical sacrifices, and they became places simply for prayer, praise, and preaching. People would gather, offer prayer to God, their praises to God, and sit under the ministry of the Word of God. According to one dictionary, the first undisputed evidence of a synagogue comes from Egypt in the 3rd century B.C., and by the 1st century B.C., they can be found all over the place. And of course, when you're reading your New Testament, when you're coming into the New Testament, you, you ought to be asking the question, because if you were reading this unaware, and you began in Genesis, and you read right through, and, and you, you got to the end of the Old Testament, and you come into the New Testament, there's an assumption made of the existence of these buildings, of these gatherings, of these places. But they didn't exist in the Old Testament. They, they weren't evidently there. We don't hear them talked about in that fashion. We have reference to Ezekiel gathering with elders, and the interaction between Ezekiel and elders, and that may indicate the, the first kind of synagogue-type scenario that was developing. Can't say for sure. But you come into the New Testament, and these synagogues are everywhere. They're found not just in Judea, but in Galilee. And of course, when you follow through the New Testament and see the missionary journeys, again, as we learned even this morning, the synagogue was the first place that the apostles would go to if they went into a new city and territory. And Jairus, we are told, is a ruler of the synagogue. He is a man who is part of a particular synagogue, probably in the Capernaum region, and he is, he is familiar, no doubt, by this stage, of who the Lord Jesus is. Right at the end of his ministry, in John chapter 18, as the Lord is standing before the high priest and being questioned, Jesus says, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort. John 18, 20. So I was always in the synagogue. I was always in the temple. I was always there. You could see me. You could hear me. You've known about me for a considerable period of time. And I would hazard a guess that Jairus was well familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ by this stage. And whenever the ceremonies then were finally put away, when God brought an end to the ceremonies, and we see the development of the New Testament church, what is remarkable, actually, is that the New Testament essentially establishes a format that is similar to, not the temple, of course, because it's done away, but follows in a mold just like the synagogue. And so as churches are established, you find Paul and the rest of them that are involved in establishing and planting churches, they, they don't invent some new approach. They don't think to themselves, here's how the church should look. They just follow the very same model as a synagogue. And so it, it demanded a certain number of men, 10 men before a synagogue could be established. And then you would have elders in the synagogue. You'd have those that were there who were key teachers, and perhaps you may have had enough people to support a rabbi and someone to be a, a local teacher in the area. But essentially then, what we have here is it wouldn't look exactly like an ancient synagogue, but, but the model is based after that. We have a congregation that come to pray, to praise, to hear the Word, and we have it led by elders, and there's this spiritual community that develops. And so what we have is a following on. When you read of Jairus being a ruler of the synagogue, you're, you're reading of a man who was involved in these early stages with, with a kind of community that's similar to our own. 
Only he was one of the leaders in that particular synagogue of which he was a part. So this is his position. Secondly, note his posture. Because Jairus, we are told, being a ruler of the synagogue, fell down at Jesus' feet. He fell down at Jesus' feet. This posture reflected humility. And I could not help but wonder whether this was the first time that Jairus had shown humility to the Lord Jesus Christ. By this stage, if you think back to Luke chapter 4, even that early in our Lord's ministry, there was clearly this animosity after him. There were those in the leadership, the Jewish leadership, that had no time for him whatsoever. And they wanted him dead. We've already dealt with that, where they tried to push him off a cliff. They, They wanted to eliminate him from them. And I wonder, I wonder if amidst all of that, if Jairus indeed was a ruler of the synagogue in the vicinity of Capernaum and Galilee, I wonder if he had ever stood up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as a ruler of the synagogue, he had simply sat back and watched on and perhaps even participated in the persecution and in all the negative language that was railed against the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't tell you for sure, but I know this, the likelihood is he is from the area And he knows all about what has been going on and the animosity toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is possible that this is the first reflection of public humility before the Lord that has ever come from this man. It's amazing what can happen when people become desperate. I was talking just today about certain events that transpire that humble people that make a change in them. And this individual was telling me of a particular incident in his own life when he was in an airplane. And as the airplane was, I think they were moving along, they're ready in the air, and he's talking to another Christian across the aisle. So they, they got to talking and they realized that both of them are Christians and they start talking about the things of God and, and so on and so forth. And the, the, the guy sitting next to him on the inside at some point then says to him, once the conversation kind of came to an end, he said, you don't really believe all of that, do you? He said, yes, of course I do. I believe every word of it. And he dismissed it and mocked it, laughed at it. And then... As the plane traveled on, there came a point where the, the plane hit a, a, a problem and all of a sudden they were beginning to descend and, and so he said that he doesn't know all the details of what was happening but he and the Christian were sitting talking about I wonder what's happening and just kind of relax and the guy next to him, his, his knuckles were white as he was holding on thinking he was going to come to the end of his life. And as he listened, he said, I, I heard him in the midst of what was going on crying to God to save him. And he said, once he said that, the plane stabilized and everything was fine. He had the thought that maybe the Lord saved him on that occasion. Well, W.P. Nicholson had an event like that too, the Northern Irish evangelist. After he left school, he he was a sailor for a time and he was on a ship on one occasion and the ship was capsizing And he cried out to God, God, if you save me, if you save my life, I'll serve you. I'll give my heart to you. Well, God did save him, spare his life. And once his feet 
got to dry land, he continued on in his sin, rebelling against God. And he looked back and he realized, if I had perished in those waters, I would have been in hell. You see, there are all sorts of ways in which men are motivated to cry for help. Disaster strikes, and all of a sudden, there's only one place to look. Up. I worked with a guy who used to always quiz me and always talk to me and challenge me about the Christian faith. We had some good conversations, but generally he was always quizzing with this unbelieving perspective. And on one occasion he told me of a, a particular story. Here he is, you know, I don't believe, and I don't believe what you're saying, and so on and so forth. And he, he just, you know, different stories get told in the process of time when you work with someone for, for years. And one day he told me that he was in a, a, a swimming pool. He's not a particularly good swimmer. And then they turned on the wave machine and he got caught in the waves of this wave machine and he thought he was going to die. And he said, when I was under the water, I cried, God saved me. I cried to God to save me. And all of a sudden a pole came down and grabbed onto it and he was hauled out of the pool. I said, how come you believe God then? You know, like at that point, you're crying to God. You, you talk to me as if there is no God. You're always questioning. You're always denying. But when you're sinking to the bottom of a pool, thinking that your life's about to be taken from you, you look to God. Why is that? And maybe you're the same. Maybe you're precisely the same. You drift on in life, and really, you are dismissive of God. You don't know God. You haven't committed your heart to God, and everything's fine now. But maybe there already have been occasions when you have had to cry, God, save me. And maybe even like Nicholson, you've made promises of, God, you get me out of this, then I'll do this. And God has delivered you, and God has done what you asked, and then you've turned your back on Him and run even twice as fast into sin. So I don't know how Jairus had dealt with the Lord prior to this. But his daughter is at the point of death. And he's desperate. And amidst all his colleagues and his friends and his community who have mocked and fought and antagonized and lied about the Lord Jesus Christ, amidst all of that that's gone on, he's aware of by running to the Lord, what that might do in terms of his status in his community. But when men are desperate, it's amazing what they'll do. So he comes to Christ and he fell down at Jesus' feet. He fell down at Jesus' feet. That is exactly what you need to do. We read this over and over again in the Gospels. Various individuals who come and run to Christ and fall down at His feet. Not all of them get converted. I don't even know if Jairus is converted at this point. But there is a humility expressed that is a pattern and something that ought to encourage you. If you're going to come before the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to be saved, if you want His help, you come humbly. And you express that humility imposture as you may in other ways as well. You see, we've no right. We, 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 we can drift through life when everything's well. I don't know whether Jairus was a wealthy man. There's a good chance that he was certainly comfortable in life. 
but amidst all that the world could offer, everything that could be gifted to him, the one thing that was most precious to him was slipping through his fingers and none of his friends could help him. All those that mocked Jesus Christ, all of those who slandered Jesus Christ, all of those who lied about the Lord Jesus Christ could not do one thing to help his daughter. Now you remember that. You remember that when you're thinking about the claims of Jesus Christ on your life and you're concerned about what your friends or family or neighbors or work colleagues might think. Because it's all fine when things aren't desperate. But I well remember, I will never forget it, (laughs) that amidst the witnessing that I was subjected to the night that I was converted, and all my arguments and all my internal fighting against the need to bow the knee to Christ and cry out to Him to save me, I will never forget the thought going through my mind, thinking about Melanie, thinking about friends, thinking about what it would be if I became a Christian and how that would impact my social life. And without uttering a word, I didn't utter a word of what was going through my mind. I didn't utter, I didn't say, what will my friends think? This is what's going through my mind. And as I'm thinking that, one of the young people that was sitting there in that car with me, he turned and he said, and you know what? Your friends, they may laugh you into hell, but they can never laugh you out. You call that coincidence? I'm struggling with friends. I'm struggling with all the relationship and my my status among them and what it would be to become a Christian and what that might mean. And I'm thinking about that, being challenged about that, What about my relationship with my girlfriend? I'm thinking about all of that. And they put before me, prompted by the Spirit, thank God, silencing the, the folly, helping me to see the reality, something I had always lived by, the fact that you have to stand your own. You make your own decisions. You stand or fall by your decisions. And you don't have an excuse to say, well, my peers did this. They did it, and I followed them. It's their fault partly as well. I was always aware of that. I was always aware that everything I do, I have to be responsible for that. But now I was going back on it. Now I'm trying to get an out and think about what my friends might think. And right at that moment, and you need to ponder the same thing. I know the power, the power of what it feels to want to be liked within a certain community and not want to bear reproach for Christ. I know what that's like. I was there at 19 years of age. I know that feeling, that pull, that draw. You don't want anything to change. You've built these friendships. You, you, you love them. You've gone through all sorts of experiences with them. And there you are standing before God. And every one of us will give account of himself to God. And you'll stand there alone. So I don't know if Jairus had to weigh the cost. I don't know if he had to think about, if I go there, this is going to have repercussions in my status, in the synagogue, in the community. But again, when you, when you start to think clearly in terms of what really matters. For Jairus, it was his daughter. It was the only thing that mattered in his life. And for you, spiritually, there are things that matter. 
one thing needful, and that is that you're right with God. When you begin to live with a sense of eternal reality, it sobers the mind because you realize, I'm not in control of my life. I could be dead tomorrow, and if I die without Christ, that's it. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. That's it. You're lost. Lost. And this isn't emphasized enough. I know. We drift along. Everyone's a Christian in Greenville. Everyone wants to think that we're all, we're all comfortable. Half the, half the community goes to church. But are people truly saved? Do they know what it's like to die to self, to love Christ above fame, above position, above friendships and status in the world? Are you prepared to suffer reproach for Christ? We must not mistake in the sovereign hand of God upon Jairus' daughter. He's a ruler of a synagogue. God-fearing man. And a good portion of the churches in America today would tell you, well, you know, this God-fearing man, this good man, this committed man, would, he's going to be healthy and well and blessed. Nothing's ever going to go wrong in his life. Maybe he thought that way. Maybe he thought, I just have to pay in. I need to support the work. I need to be available, help my neighbor, pray, read the scriptures. He looked to himself what he could do, thinking that may be enough. And having lived his life to a standard that he thought was sufficient, Almighty God comes and smites his daughter. Smites her. Twelve years of age. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a girl or a boy? A child on the brink of death? That's what Jairus had to see. Wondering whether his daughter would die. And so he was humbled. He comes, his postures, falling down at Jesus' feet. Take his example to heart. Follow it. Fall down before the Lord. Don't fall before the world. Don't fall before friends. Don't worship at the idol of self. Fall down before Christ. Because everything you think you have... It can be taken away from you in a moment. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. And then you'll realize how much you need Christ. Note also his pleading. Because he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. He besought him. A number of things to consider about this pleading of Jairus. First, it is earnest. Has to be earnest, doesn't it? He's fighting for the life of his daughter. Have you ever seen a man earnest? Have you ever saw, have you ever witnessed someone dealing with something that was life and death and pleading? It doesn't happen very often. But this is where Jairus is. 
this, there's nothing polite about this. There's nothing in the sense that it's normal approach. It's not how he would come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in other occasions, um, on a professional level or whatever. He's he just getting through the crowd, making his way through the throng, getting down before Jesus, and everyone's crowded around him, and, and Jesus is pushed in. You can just imagine all these bodies pushed in, and he's pushing his way through the disciples, through the crowd, and there he, and he just falls down. He's, he's not falling down in a space where everyone can see him half a mile away. That's not what's going on. No one can see him in that sense. He's down on his knees being crushed by the people, and he's trying to get the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ by being at his knees amidst the thronging crowd. And he could see him holding on to the, to the garment of the Lord Jesus, beseeching him, longing, earnestly crying out. We're told something of what he says in Mark's record of it. Mark chapter 5, verse 23. Let's give some verbiage to his cry. Mark helps us to hear the cry of this man. Mark 5, 23, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come, and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. He had seen this. He had seen this. He had heard about it. It was spread abroad. Jesus is mighty to heal and deliver, whether you're blind or lame or at the point of death and sick, whatever it might be. Come to the Lord Jesus. He puts his hand upon you, and amazing things happen. And so he comes, pushes his way in before the Lord Jesus, falls down at his feet, holds on to him. I can just see him clinging on there and saying, My little daughter, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, I beg thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed. Are there tears in his eyes? Possibly. Is the cry broken? Probably. So he comes in earnest. And you know, the Lord loves earnestness. He does. He loves his people being earnest. He loves men. He loves sinners being earnest. Being earnest in their repentance. Being earnest in their pleading for forgiveness. He doesn't want people, he doesn't encourage, he doesn't invite people to come haphazardly. He likes to see people come in earnest. It's the earnest man who realizes the significance of what's going on. You present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that Jesus can save you, take away all your sins, and in and such a way that someone says, oh really? Oh really, what do I have to do? Oh, you just pray this prayer, just repeat this prayer after me. Sure, okay. And they're standing in the street, you get them, you repeat this prayer after me, and they repeat it, and then you say, you're saved now, off you go, and away they go. And they've been told they're saved. That's salvation. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible that someone could be saved that way, but it's not likely. Because one of the things the Lord does is press upon you what's actually going on. That the wrath of God ha hangs over your head. That the wages of sin is death. That you're, you're hanging on the brink. You're going to a lost sinner's hell. These things aren't told. But Jesus preached more about this than anyone else. Because he wanted people to be in earnest. And so he told them, strive. Strive to enter into the straight gate. 
Don't sit back. Don't think it's some casual decision. It's not a hobby you're going out on here. This is life and death. Repent or perish. Strive. Set aside everything. Agonize to press into life. And even when he was dealing with his church, what did he say? Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Not just repent. Be zealous therefore and repent. That is with energy, with intent, with desire. Get about this business of recognizing your sin and your need to repent of it. Oh, I know. I, look, I'm well aware that everybody wants to be casual and relaxed. The vast majority of people in the world today would rather I sit in a nice little stool and talk to them about life issues. I know that's what you want. You love that stuff. We all do. God help us. God help us when we sit in a stool with a PowerPoint presentation and talk to people through casual matters of life and family issues and all that. And I'm, they're all those things are important, don't get me wrong. But let me tell you what I'm thinking about when you gather before me, especially on Sunday evenings. You know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about who's going to die next? And are they going to know the Lord? Do they know him before they die? Are they going to be lost? Am I going to have to deal with a parent coming to me and, and, and trying to tell me, little Jimmy, will he pray a prayer? And I'm sitting there trying to... Un- Do I tell her? Do I tell her? You can't depend on that, ma'am. You can't be certain. You know the reality. Little Jimmy was living like the devil. There's no fruit of repentance, no love for Christ, none. You want me to stand there and tell everyone he's in heaven? That's what I have to deal with. That's what I have to face. People dying. And having to deal with the ones who are left behind and hopefully being able to give legitimate comfort because there was evidence of a real new birth. They, they truly knew Christ. They loved him and they left a legacy, a testimony of loving Christ, loving his church, serving the Savior. And endeavoring, though imperfectly, to honor the Lord in all things. So you, you get to drift through your life maybe and not think about these things, but I don't have that luxury. I have to make sure that your blood is not on my hands. That your loved ones cannot come to me and say, or talk about me to the community and say, we took our children to that church for years. We went there and we attended and he never once told them about hell. Never told them about the cross. Never told them about the forgiveness of sins. Never told them how to be reconciled to God. The Lord says in Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Is there not an invitation of earnestness there? He loves the earnestness. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Have you sought for the Lord with all your heart? Have you? Do you seek God at all? His pleading is not only earnest, it's also argued. It's argued. He argues the case. We already read back on Mark what he said, the arguments that he brought. 
he doesn't use euphemisms here. He doesn't come and say, there's a matter of concern I would like you to give a little of attention to. Could you come with me? He gets right to the details, presents the matter upon his heart. He argues the case. He's trying to get his attention. He says to the Lord Jesus, I have a little matter here for you to deal with. The Lord could have looked at him and, and said, what do you mean? <laughs> there are thousands here who have little matters for me to deal with. So he gets his attention. He describes the scene. My little daughter. My little daughter. She's mine. She's my daughter. And she's at the point of death. When I left her, she's fighting for her life. It's hard to ignore that, isn't it? So he argues the case. And his pleading is also moving. It's moving. Because as we read in Mark's gospel as well, it says that Jesus went with him. And it's indicated also in Luke's gospel. Because it goes on to say, as he went, as he went, speaking of the Lord Jesus, the end of verse 42, as he went, the people thronged him. So this, this is, and I don't want to elaborate on this too much, but this is certainly an help for even Christians here tonight. How is it that we are to plead before the Lord? We are to be earnest in prayer. You don't come to a Wednesday night to play games. And the very nature of a Wednesday night meeting generally means people don't come to play games because if they were coming to play games, they wouldn't come at all. When people come on Wednesday nights, they come... And we should always endeavor to come earnestly. We should also come to argue, to argue a matter, to tell the Lord about someone on our hearts and tell him about the case and present it in prayer, argue it. And we ought to plead until he moves. And we're not, would Jairus have stopped if he hadn't seen the Lord moving in his direction? No, he would have continued on pleading and pleading and pleading arguing the case until the Lord began to move. That brings us then to see also a needy daughter, not only a desperate father, but a needy daughter. So looking at the passage again, verse 42, he had one only daughter. So she was, first of all, an only daughter. Every child is precious. But I imagine that for those who possess only one child, that only they can understand the feeling of losing that only child. We don't know whether Jairus had sons, but it seems to me that the, the emphasis of the passage is that this is his only child, this only daughter. So that's what she means to him. She is the only one of her kind. There's no one else. And I'm encouraged by the fact that in this portion you have a man coming to plead the case for his daughter. You have a man showing the affection that he should have for his daughter. I say that, and that might seem it doesn't need to be said, but let me say it nonetheless. Fathers should have an affection for their daughters. 
Fathers are not to think that their only duty is toward their sons. That they raise their sons, but the daughters and the business of raising the daughters is up to the mother. Certainly there are things, many things, that only, only a mother can teach her daughter. But a father must not possess a mentality of preference to his sons because he thinks that's his primary job. As someone that's half Armenian, one of my greatest grievances of Armenia is that it is second only to China in terms of its gender-selective abortion. That is, that second only to China, they kill once they know that the child in the womb is a girl. 120 boys to 100 girls are born in Armenia. And if you know anything about statistics of birth, that's hugely significant. So when I look at my three daughters, <laughs> I think about that. I think about the Lord's mercy of them being born into a home where both father and mother love them. And it wasn't even, and would never be, even the thought that somehow they are lesser than boys. And should a fourth daughter arrive, I will praise the Lord. Isn't it awful to think that there are places and ideologies where this is normative. When you read in your Declaration of Independence about, what is it, about rights that are um, self-evident. <laughs> They're not self-evident across the world. She was not only his only daughter, she was a young daughter. There are few things more tragic than the death of a child. And this is what he's staring at, the possibility of his only 12-year-old daughter being taken from him. There comes a point when all our children must stand on their own two feet. And any time a child dies before a parent, it is always tragic. No parent wants to go through that ever. But when you're in the place, when you're in the, the, the season of life where you're caring for them every day, and they're utterly dependent upon you, and there they are, lying in a bed of sickness, facing death, and that same little one that you have poured your heart into providing for and feeding and housing and teaching. And their entire life, there's never been a period where they haven't been dependent on you. They don't know what it's like to be 18 and 19 and gain a sense of independence and provide for themselves and deal with problems themselves. They've never gone through that. So that child is lying on that bed still with a mentality of utter dependence on you 
They're looking to you. And you can't do a thing to help them. This is where Jairus found himself. And she was a dying daughter. She lay a dying, verse 42. She lay a dying. As much as this is set in the realm of the, the physical, and Jairus is dealing with this, and I'm trying to paint the scene for you to feel what Jairus was dealing with. There are spiritual truths for us to draw from this. And let me then direct it specifically to fathers. Fathers with daughters, and you can apply it. Certainly mothers, you need to take this on board. There's application to you for sure. Any parent, any person with children. But let me just speak to fathers. You with with daughters that are astray, let's let's take what God providentially has given to us tonight. Let's those of us with daughters... Think about their spiritual needs. Think about where they are right at this very moment. And let's realize that they are born spiritually dead. Read Ephesians 2 in that light. Read Ephesians 2 in the light of the position that your children are in. Turn over there for a moment just to refresh your own mind of of the familiar text that's found here. Ephesians chapter 2. So you read this often and you you see your testimony in it. You have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, were in time past, and so on and so forth. But 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 put your unconverted daughter there. Look at it. She who has yet to be quickened is dead in trespasses and sins. And right now, she walks according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also she has her conversation in the lusts of flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And she is, by nature, a child of wrath, even as others. Fathers, that's your daughter. That's it. She's dead. Her nature is that of being a child of wrath. She doesn't know God. She's lost. She's perishing. She's running headlong into hell. So what are we to do? Verse 4, but God. But God. This is where we come to. Like Jairus. Jairus runs to God in flesh. Jairus runs knowing there's only one who can save her. Only one who can help her. Utterly convinced that there's no possible way that anyone else on planet earth, if there was someone else in Israel who could have helped Jairus, Chances are, given his status in the community and everything else that we've already dealt with tonight, chances are he would have went there for help. But there was no one who could help. And only a fool would sit back and watch your daughter die. 
when you know there's someone who could possibly help. And fathers, this, this is what our daughters need, whether they are young, tiny, sitting beside you here tonight, seemingly innocent, still under your care, listening to your instruction, all of that. What do you do when you realize that there, there are still spiritual problems? You're not sure if they're truly converted. What do you do? You go to God. You need them to have a work of God. Nothing else will do. You can bring them for baptism. You can catechize them. Make sure they memorize all the Scripture. You can do everything. But they must be brought to God. And that's why again on Wednesday nights, I want to hear it. Let me exhort you fathers. Plead for your children here on a Wednesday night. Don't be shy. Don't be thinking that's something just to pray about at home. We all need to hear it. We all enter into it. I need to hear you fathers, you mothers, pleading over your children, begging God, naming them, that God himself will save them. Rather than waiting until it's evident that they've never been regenerate. And you're coming to me, what am I to do? She's run off with a man. And then having to deal with all the complexities and the ugliness of that. Go to God then? No. Go to God now. Go to God now. Beg God now. Get in the business of intercessory prayer for your children. That your daughters may be saved. Not become the plaything of the devil. Although many a man of God has had to lament that his daughter has become like the woman at the well. Relationship after relationship, running around trying to find something only Christ can give. True contentment. God is rich in mercy, and we are going to discover The Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ is rich in mercy. Was rich in mercy to Jairus and his daughter. It depicts for us his saving grace. His love to intercede, to, to interpose, to, to stand in, to deliver, to save. He loves to do it. So we don't come to him as a reluctant saviour. But a willing one. Willing to hear. If you but beg him to come and show mercy. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. We have an epidemic in our day of an utter breakdown of the family at the level of the relationship between fathers and daughters. And I fear the father who has to stand before God having utterly failed in his duty to love his daughters to care for them, to nurture them. And we need to pray for fathers. Your wives need to pray for your husbands. You can't do it alone.
If you're here tonight and you're not saved, maybe you could testify to having a father who has failed to truly love you and care for you. And maybe there's resentment and bitterness there. I can't begin to deal with that from this platform. But let me say this. There is a Father in heaven who is perfect in love. And if you find a myriad of imperfections in your earthly father, you run to him and you will find him to be impeccable, perfect, and able to truly understand what you need and supply that need. So run to him through Jesus Christ and he will deliver, he will save, he will come to your aid. Lord, I pray, I pray for myself. Help me to continue to love my daughters. And I pray that every father here would love their daughters, would love them fervently, sincerely and love them in such a way that it really reflects the love of God in their hearts that is shed abroad by the Holy Ghost. Protect our little ones, our daughters particularly as we think of them tonight, protect them from the ravages of sin, from the inroads of the enemy. Deliver our daughters from the temptation to promiscuity or any other sins. May they learn early in life to run to Jesus. And may we as fathers lead them there. So bless our homes. Some of them perhaps need healing. God, step in. Hear prayer. And help by thy perfect and boundless grace. Be with all as we travel home tonight. May thy word continue to be mulled over in our minds. May we squeeze out the benefit as we progress through this week. And for those who go downstairs, bless the fellowship, make it fruitful, profitable, edifying. Bless the food to our bodies. Help us then this week. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Mm-hmm.